Welcome to Inside the Rope, where we interview the leading minds in wealth management. Of course, I'm not David Clark. My name's Paul Heath. I'm the CEO of Coda Capital. And today I thought we'd do something different and that we'd turn the microphones around and interview David. 70 episodes, more than 100,000 listens, three years down the track. We talk with David about his own background, his journey to how he came to Coda Capital. We talk about why he began the podcast. David talks about some of the characteristics that he has observed over some of the interviews that he's conducted and the people that he's met. And in fact, he talks about some of the favorite interviews that he's had and why, and in particular, some of the really interesting people that he's encountered along the way. David also talks about how the podcast has shaped the way that he works with clients. And he gives us a fascinating insight into simply what it's like to start from scratch and build something, and in this case, a podcast. David would be upset if I didn't use the opportunity to remind you that anything in the podcast here is general advice and that if you would like something specifically tailored for you, you should seek a specialist advisor to do that. But in the meantime, David Clark, Inside the Rope, please enjoy the show. So David Clark, welcome to Inside the Rope. It uh, feels unusual to be on the opposite side of the microphone this time. Someone else is in control. Tell me a little about that. How does it feel to be on the opposite side of the microphone, particularly when you set this up, that you want to be interviewing some of the leading minds in wealth management? How does that work? Well, hopefully it's not an oxymoron, Paul. <laughs> well done. So let's let's start the podcast by talking about David Clark, you. Tell us the David Clark story and how you came to be in this place now. Sure. So... Married three kids, uh, youngest Lucy just turned 14, eldest uh, turned 19, first year of uni. Um, started, uh, did economics finance at university, spent uh, two years in London as an investment analyst, came back, was a uh, investment analyst in a corporate finance team and then started a uh, out in the world of providing advice, investment advice, financial planning solutions identified about six or seven years ago, I really wanted to move to a deeper relationship model in the the high net wealth space. Uh, We had fewer clients, but much deeper relationships and realized that the structure I was in was like fighting with one hand hand behind your back. Uh, And it was really about that time that uh, a fellow by by the name of Steve Tucker tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, how would you think about being a uh, partner at Coda? So I sort of started the journey and thinking about that and uh, uh, joined Coda now four and a half years ago as a director. I have a couple of other interests in that uh, I'm on the, on the foundation, a director of the foundation of St. Joseph's College where I went to school. Um, but yeah, the, the primary gig and focus today is uh, as a, a partner an advisor at uh, Coda Capital. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the story. What makes being an advisor attractive for you? And in the context of answering that, David, talk to the listeners a little bit about the role that you play in, in helping them with their wealth. Well, I think what's attractive about it is it's an area where you can see a lot of people develop a lot of angst because they don't have the expertise or experience uh, time, wherewithal, 
um, to often manage or provide the input to their finances that they want and they need to have the sort of lifestyle they want and they need. Um, so to be able to have uh, a deep relationship with people where you're adding value and there's mutual respect, um, you know, that's very gratifying. And uh, that, that's the part of it I most enjoy. And what was the idea behind the podcast? How did this come about? Well, firstly, the format. You know, the format really appealed to me in that you could digest information. You know, as you know, I, I like to do a bit of exercise and, and fitness and being able to, uh, before I get shouted down, you know, on, on the bike, have trend, you know, I can hear the road still with one in, uh, running and those sort of things and, and even uh, commuting on the ferry, uh, being able to digest information in what was then this sort of new thing coming, being a podcast. Uh, seemed to me to be very good. And also in the financial services world, most content is in written form. And you know, I spend all of my days reading, writing, emails, a lot of you know, PDS documents, information memorandums, offer documents. You know, reading when I get home isn't something I really want to do. So digesting information by a podcast was great. So I've got a whole heap of podcasts I'm obsessed with and and read and, and listen to all the time. Um, and I thought, well, here is an opportunity to give clients the kind of access that we get as investment advisors and managers, um, you know, uh, uh, and inside the rope, behind the scenes, VIP fly on the wall to some of the smartest and brightest people in the world um, in their expertise and in their, you know, their narrow fields often. Um, well, let's give it a try and, and see what happens at least. So that, that was the motivation behind it. And the, you know, there's always so much information content in a name, isn't there, inside the rope? And I remember when you and I talked about the concept very initially, we talked about that idea of giving the clients access to the insights that we're able to see through direct access to the managers and the way that it plays out. It must have been challenging in the early days broadcasting initially. I think your first podcast might have had three listeners, you, me and your mum. Yes, but, uh, I but, think but mum might actually, have had to be in page. She didn't, know what a, she didn't know what a podcast was, as many many people didn't. But it's gone on from there. Give us a sense of the scale of what you're producing today and, and how from that little idea um, something pretty impressive has grown. Yeah, well, Look, it, it's interesting, and one of the things that I've enjoyed about the journey of that is that my son, you know, listeners or people who have listened closely over the episodes will know that my son Josh started editing them, uh, you know, when he was in year nine at school or year ten, um, and he's now first year uni, and, and sharing that process with him. Although there's been frustrations with, uh, you know, a, a boy first year of uni who's uh, discovered rugby and beer and all the other things keeping him focused, but the journey has been that, you know, I can remember being really excited when uh, we had our first episode that had something like 300 listens. Um, now, fast forward three years in July this year, uh, it's been, and we're right on the precipice of hitting 100,000 listens. Um, and we've had episodes with over 12,000 listens on it. So um, yes, it has changed. Uh, where we were sort of begging and borrowing people uh, in friends and favours to now we're getting phone calls from people in the market wanting to come on the show. 
um, and you know, it's developed a little bit of a life of its own. One of the interesting stories of that is uh, I was on a skiing holiday uh, um, not too long ago and we caught up with some friends incidentally who happened to be there at the same time and, and they were there with friends and they said, oh, well, let's catch up for dinner and you know, the kids are all over at one table and uh, uh, unbeknownst, uh, one of their children came over and said, oh, look, uh, gee, is that your podcast? Uh, we've been made study that for school at economics, so I feel sorry for a generation of kids. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, you never quite know where any of these things end up. But uh, credit to you for starting something and having a go. So, David, interviewing some of the leading minds in wealth management, what, what have you learnt? What have you learnt from sitting on the other side of the table asking the questions? Yeah, I think there's, it's interesting, the people on the other side that you're speaking to um, sometimes there isn't a correlation between their oratory skills and presenting skills um, and, and what I perceive as their capability or their outcomes that they deliver. Sometimes there is. Um, there are some general overarching characteristics that I, I would tend to call out. In most cases, a lot of the people that I you know, have spoken to are quite humble and that they will often point out that they just don't know certain things. And, and I find, you know, those almost that are better and more successful are almost quicker to point out, well, there's just the unknowns here and, and these are the unknowns from that, that perspective. So, that, so that's kind of interesting. I'd just, just pause there because that's, let's explore that a little bit more because humility is not something that's typically associated with very successful investing. Mm. So it must manifest. You must be able to see that in a slightly different way than what you would typically expect humility to look like. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that it's the self-assurance of those people and the confidence that they have that you know they've actually been around the block enough and they know what they don't know and they're not going to pretend or they don't have to pretend or feel they have to pretend or fake it to say, oh, yes, yeah, we, we know about this, when people experienced in markets know, well, that's very, very hard to get right. And, and you know, that's a, a very different thing if you can get that right consistently. Yeah. It just doesn't tend to exist. It's one of those expectation gaps, isn't it? I, throughout my career, David, I've often said to clients, if I knew what was going to happen, do you think I'd come to work every day? Hmm. I would be sunning myself on a beach in some exotic location around the world but uh, it's the nature of what we do, isn't it? Sure, but the experience and the probability of them getting it right um, tends to increase with that skill level and experience level. The other thing that I've noticed that most of them display is uh, absolute curiosity. You know, these are people who often are very, very successful financially and have made a lot of money. You, know, you can Google these people and, and you can see some of the numbers involved, however, I'm absolutely convinced it's not what gets them out of bed. And, and you'll see this as you meet with them and as you come in and out, they'll be poking their heads around corners and looking at names on signs. And, 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 and they, you get the sense of it's almost solving the puzzle for them. You know, you know, people like John Hempton, for instance, that just stands out at the, at the top of my mind that I'm absolutely convinced you know, John does what he does because he loves the aha 
I, I solved it. You know, I, I yeah. finished the Rubik's Cube type of thing. Yeah, because this really gets to the essence, doesn't it, of some of the research work that they do. You, so you're saying it's sort of founded in this innate curiosity. Absolutely. You know, they, they want to pull the piece of string and keep going and something in their personality uh, and their skill set allows them to keep going until they find a position. And often a lot of those insights are quite unique and these people are quite narrow in that area, um, you know, in their, their fields of expertise. Um, you know, Chris Joy, for instance, comes to mind um, as, you know, a different style uh, of person and, 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 and the way he articulates um, is very forthright, but the, the level of information and knowledge um, and but also the curiosity you can see to, to want to drill into things and go to the nth degree, that curiosity is, uh, you know, right, right there. Humility, curiosity, any other character traits of the, of the successful uh, investors? Yeah, I, I think they're, they're courageous, you know, in that, you know, there, there isn't too many other fields where they will say something and then six months later you can go back and say, well, actually, how, how did that pan out? And, and each month they have to front up and, and, and put a set of numbers down which they're judged upon. Um, so that, you know, there's a fair bit of courage in, in a lot of these managers uh, that, you know, they have to take a position in the market. Um, and, and you know, so, so I'd say that's a, that's a trait that you see from them. But as, I, as I think about the lineup that you've had over the years too, very few of them operate in areas you would call safe. You know, they're, they're, aren't they? They're, they're, they're quite unique and niche in what they're doing and exploiting the fact that they, those other characteristics of curiosity and humility allow them to find insights others don't. But unless you have the courage to pull the trigger, and make the investments, you'll, you'll never be able to take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the things when you say, what have I learnt over this period is also that there are these little pockets of asymmetric risk where, you know, markets aren't always efficient. And some of these people that we tend to want to talk to, because realistically, we're only going to want to pay fees as an advisor to people where they can add value and demonstrate they can add value. So most of the people I've tended to talk to tend to operate in these narrow fields. You know, Kathy Wood comes to mind and you talk about some of the experiences. Well, I've had her twice on the podcast and Kathy's, uh, she runs ARK Invest, which is kind of investing money for your children's children in genetics and technologies. And, you know, she's looking great at the moment with a position on Tesla when it went from 400 to 250 Everyone thought she was crazy talking about it going to 3,000. Um, but, you know, I, I spoke with her the second time at the top of the Rockefeller Centre um, and, and she just, you know, super impressive, um, but very much in that niche area, um, but, you know, humble about it and all of those characteristics. Does identifying those characteristics in people who are successful in investing help you understand what you're not? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think you can be all things to all people. And I think understanding where you can add value to people is really important. Um, so from my perspective, having relationships like this in the market with people that are complementary to my skill set is really important because that allows me to deliver into clients the solution that they need. Okay. We explored 
of the people that you've met and interviewed, how you can identify certain character traits. David, are there certain ways that they go about investing money that you're able to identify and have learnt and, and, and perhaps the listeners can learn from you know, the, the processes they use or the disciplines or the way that they think about building a portfolio? Yeah, look, I, I think firstly the alignment of interest with a lot of those managers is really, really important. You don't tend to find those people in large institutions where they're on a wage or a salary and a, and a bonus that's a percentage of that. And if they are, it was a small part of their career until you know, they worked out that they could actually um, manage money and manage money well, and therefore they're going to be remunerated in a way that reflects that. Um, so you know, that, that's one of the things I would say. I think they're, they're, they're quite process driven in what they do but at the same time, they're pragmatic enough to say, hold on, um, we've got some sort of external pressure or force, which means that process needs to change or pivot. And, and that's really a big skill because one is the process of the machine giving you replicable outcomes and giving you scale and giving you the ability to, to repeat it, but then actually saying, well, actually, we've had something come up here and it might be COVID-19 or it might be something else which was built outside of that process and therefore we have to change um, versus the sort of behavioural effects that most people suffer from and most of people who want to talk to me about managing wealth suffer from is, oh, yes, we understand that markets go up and down and, oh, yes, we will, uh, you know, we, we want to sell things when markets go up and we want to buy things when markets are at the bottom and behaviourally it's the absolute opposite. You, know, you talk about my role, a big part of my role is keeping people invested through the cycle and stopping them from doing things that damage them. But part of that big process from good managers I see is you know, the, the understanding, instinct and experience to, to modify their behaviour when it makes sense. Because that's so there's two interesting insights into what you've just shared, and we're going to dig into those in a little bit more detail. So the first one is that idea that for these managers, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because there's a very thin line, and it's often a blurry line that sits between having the courage of convictions and being stubborn, okay? And there's another thin line that sits between being prepared to adapt with new information and not being resilient enough to see a cycle or, an, or a noise through. It's a tricky challenge, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. We have a great experience of that. Um, if you look at Phil King, who, you know, you talk about, you know, who I've really enjoyed, but, you know, a complete contrast. Someone like Hamish Douglas, I can ask one or two questions and look down and time to wrap up the podcast. You know, he'll give you an all-encompassing answer that's, that's really spot on. Um, Phil is a completely different character. The first time I interviewed him, Within five minutes, I'd asked all my questions, you know, what do you do, Phil? Oh, we manage money for clients, David. <laughs> you know, type, this type of thing. But the experience, the example that you're talking about is we did a podcast with him in February this year of 2020, um, just before COVID. And he was saying, oh, what a great time to invest. Interest rates are low. Cap rates should be expanded. I can see things expanding. And then, of course, um, COVID-19 hit and his portfolio that had was up 80% in the small company space in 2019, was down circa 40, 50%, okay? We went back and spoke to him after that, and 
very quickly he was able to pivot and say, well, look, there was information come to light that we didn't have, a 105-year type of episode. We've completely repositioned our portfolio now. We've sold all of these things in light of what we now know and new information. And, and the portfolio's rebounded 35 40%. Yeah, so it's interesting. It, and this gets to the second issue that I wanted to explore with you because you had mentioned before that part of your role is to help clients stay invested through the cycle, okay? And there's, this, there's an element of that of being passive. But in fact, the, the, the podcast gives insight into exactly how active the underlying managers are, isn't it? And that's an element of what's going on here. By being inside the rope, you can actually see a little bit about what's going on. Well, it is. When, when you're managing portfolios and money for clients, it's very interesting because a lot of the clients we manage money for are very, very successful business people and have created wealth and had liquidity events and they're, they're great at the widget factory or whatever it is. And, and their instinct is, if I want to get fitter, I go to the gym and I work out more. If I want to get smarter, I read more and I study more. And therefore, you know, they have this instinct with their portfolio sometimes initially when they're starting out is, well, I've got to do more things and I've got to cut parts of the, anything that's a non-performer in this quarter, I've got to get rid of, et cetera, et cetera. And, and one of the things that, you know, I'm very big on uh, is that, yes, there's, there's a big difference between a portfolio of good ideas and a, and a, and a good portfolio and, and having diversification and things built together to work together is really, really important. A critical thing. So let's go back to the podcast. You've, you've interviewed an eclectic group of managers, both here in Australia and in fact all over the world. So who are the ones who are the ones that most impressed you? You've, you've named a couple of people already, but let's talk about who are the managers that most impressed you and why? And I might even add on to that, David, what were some of the most memorable podcasts you've done and why? Sure. So Look, it's interesting. There's a lot of really smart people that I just enjoy talking to, and I, you know, I think it's a real opportunity for me to get in front of them. Um, you know, people like I've spoken about Hamish Douglas. You know, Rhett Kessler was the first person um, who who did episode number one with me, and I still think, and I spoke to Rhett uh, this week, and you know, I think he's really intelligent, smart. The way he goes about it is. A lot of those characteristics I was talking about, he ticks the boxes. Um, Kathy Wood at ARC, you know, doing one at the Rainbow Room in New York was kind of special. Um, also, the, the field that she talks about is great. Similarly so, you know, Adrian Redlich at Merrick's in the private debt space, um, very unique part of the market, uh, very deep knowledge, highly intelligent, uh, really plugged in and knows all the space in his area. Um, you know, Adrian's been su you know, super impressive. Um, you know, the IBEX guys and the Israel Technology Opportunity, you know, that's Israel Technology is not on the forefront of most investors' mind or how you access that. And there's guys that just live, sleep and breathe that. Um, you know, that, that type of thing has been terrific. Uh, John Hempton, you know, you have to have him up there. Uh, you never know quite what you're going to get as an answer when you ask it, um, which makes it entertaining and nerve-wracking, um, but, you know, re really entertaining. Um, you know, there's equally been some that, you know, it's been a bit hard. I, I want to think there was a couple I did over in London 
when we were on a, uh, a study tour and there was, and then, you know, you could just, you know, I've asked you this question and no, you haven't answered that. It was a, it was a simple answer <laughs> and you just want to answer it for them. Um, so they haven't all gone uh, straight to plan, but, but it's been a, a, a good experience. How do you research and prepare for them? Well, it's interesting. I, I sometimes think that the less research, the better, because one of the things I really want to make sure is that um, I, I keep the language really relevant to the listener in that I try to avoid alpha and market and technical terms, which for a lot of our clients, you know, is what are they talking about or goodly good. So I almost, in some cases, want to take myself on the journey with the client or the listener at the same time. Um, but I do find myself, you know, looking at what their fund is, their background, try to draw out of them. Um, you know, if I can find some little things that I think are interesting or positions that they have or thoughts or experience or some things in their history, I, I'd, I'd like to draw that out. But at the same time, try to keep it so that listeners can get a good idea of who this person is, what they do and how they do it. And what's their secret sauce? Yeah, and it's an interesting, like you, you raise the point because being good at what they do doesn't necessarily mean they're great at articulating that. Oh, in, absolutely. And certainly not articulating in a way that might resonate with a typical listener of your podcast. Absolutely, yeah, they're separate things. So trying to steer them towards that um, is one of my objectives. How would you encourage your listeners to make the best use of the podcast? As, as, a, as a tool for them and what they're trying to do? Yeah, I, I think they should use it in my mind as getting a bit of an understanding of the type of strategies that are out there and forming an opinion for themselves as to where they can see different strategies adding value and also how, how some of these things can start to fit together. You know, one, one of the great people I love talking to, it's interesting, is in the rural space. Um, we've done Kilter Rural and also Argyle and Kim Morrison. I just love his down-to-earth, very practical, no-nonsense, straightforward. But you know, that would be an example where you've got an asset class which isn't widely understood. And it's kind of interesting. I actually, you know, you talk about podcasts and I listen to audio books and I, I discovered that Leonardo da Vinci actually owned water rights in Milan. <laughs> so when people look at me and say, oh, water rights, but there's an example. Um, I wonder how they, what they'd be together. worth today if you'd held on to them. Yeah, more, more, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I think people, I, I would say, I, I would use it to support their education and understanding. It occurs to me for a lot of my clients, when we come along and talk to them about a diversified portfolio that's designed to preserve capital and, and grow their wealth over a long period of time with minimum volatility, that we might end up with 25 different strategies within that. And me being able to articulate to them at any great level uh, or depth is just hard work because yeah. it takes an amount of time and digesting of that information. So I find if you can break it into bite-sized pieces, I know I have clients who, you know, listen to it as they walk up to the Hunters Hill shops 
um, you know, when they go to get a coffee once a week type of thing. And that's great because it then gives them a level of insight that when the strategy doesn't necessarily behave in a way that they would like it to, they understand why and there's a greater level of understanding. And that greater level of understanding, in my experience, tends to lead to better decision making and outcomes. Yeah. So here's, here's my own personal reflection, because on several occasions, in exactly that circumstance you've talked about, when, when perhaps the strategy, because I, I personally invest in all these things as well, and you'll look at the outcome and think, well, that's odd, but I'll often go back and listen to the podcast. And it, it, it doesn't give you all the answers, but it certainly gives you a context. And then the second thing, David, I just want to let you down gently on this one. Um, <laughs> I try very hard to get my children to listen to the podcast, and I'm only letting you down gently because I know that I'm having limited success on that. But for me, I think it's a wonderful tool that people could think about using to engage the next generation. So many of our clients, you know, we talk about this all the time. The, the, the money is for the next generation and the generation beyond that. And it's a useful tool to get them involved because it is accessible, isn't it? Really, really easy and uh, yeah, I, I, e easy to uh, do in multiple different formats. So yes, accessibility is high. So at the top of the show, you told us a little bit about what you do, okay, and the, the, the role you have in sort of supporting and educating clients, um, letting them help achieve the goals that they want to. Within all of that, you do build investment portfolios. You work with clients to build investment portfolios. How has the podcast changed the way you go about that work? Well, I think it gives far better perspective and allows me to work out where we're going to spend money on external managers and when it makes sense to have a more passive strategy and also to work out how we can best put together a portfolio that's complementary. So we don't end up with the same sort of themes running through the portfolio so that they all react in the same way. That doesn't give us that diversification. That, that's been very helpful. Because well, let's just dig, dig into that a little bit in the detail, right? Because you've, you've, you've sort of obliquely referenced this a couple of times in our conversation. This idea that in a good portfolio, not everything is going to be going well at the same time. And in fact, yeah. One of our challenges, isn't it, is convincing clients that if everything is going well at the same time, we've actually got a problem. We're a bit upset. That's right. It's all correlated. If we sit down at the end of one quarter and everything's gone up fantastically, well, yes, that's good. But we're also very nervous because we, we know that given another set of parameters, it all may go down a lot, which is what we don't want. So we would actually expect over the short term quite a few of the strategies to behave differently. And, and it's really that portfolio coming together over the medium term to in, in a way that minimizes volatility and, and reduces risk to give a far more consistent uh, sort of trajectory of a portfolio that's super important. And, yeah. and how does it, does sort of the personal connection that you build, that, that suddenly this isn't a fund manager that you're sending money off to, but it's a person that you've got insight into and um, yeah, you build rapport with. Does that also change the nature of how you work back into clients? Oh, absolutely. You know, once again, I, I have, as do the partners at Coda, have exposure to these managers and our own hard-earned money uh, with them. But it also helps 
when uh, you're, you're talking with a client and that, you know, sometimes you're writing up or, or presenting to them what's the name on a page and their association or understanding of that is a couple of levels distant, to be able to say to them, well, look, you know, when, when I met with X, Y and Z last month or last year and we've talked about these issues and I'm very comfortable and this is my understanding and feeling and, and this is based on my experience, the relationship, I think that's another level of comfort uh, and trust that that delivers. That's good. Okay. You always finish the show by offering your guest one final comment. I'm going to shape that just a little bit. Because uh, you also ask for feedback. And, you know, you and I have worked together long. I know you value feedback. Here's your chance to ask the listeners, well, to tell the listeners why that feedback's important. How does it shape what you do? And uh, how does it set up the way you think about the, the podcast itself? Yeah, terrific. I, I, you know, I think that we're, I am probably guilty of assuming what I think the client wants to hear or the prospective client um, or the listeners want to hear. Um, I think it's always very, very healthy to stop and uh, you know, logic loop that if you can and actually hear from the client um, to make sure you're not running off on a tangent. So receiving that feedback as to who they want to hear, um, the type of information and data they value is, is really helpful and I enjoy it. It's great. Well, David, um, first of all, congratulations. Thanks. It's, it's been, having been there at the very beginning when you first put the idea about it, it's wonderful to see your tenacity, your persistence, your determination end up in something that's actually blossoming and, it, and there's, a, you know, there's a wonderful future ahead of us. So congratulations on that. Uh, thank you for the work that you do. You know, the, the, a service that's available to not just the team here at Coda and their clients, but to the wider community. I think, you know, we want to try to rebuild trust with the, with the community. Um, we've got to be prepared to put something back in. And so I think on both those fronts, um, you deserve um, a little bit of a round of applause. So thank you and well done. And uh, most importantly, thank you for being on Inside the Rope. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.